friend of mine, uh, successful TV show host, own right. Please welcome Steve Pakin. Steve, thank you for coming. Hello, James. Good to see you again. Been a long time. Yeah, it has been a long time. Um, I don't think I've seen. We had lunch, I think, what was that, like two and a half years ago or something. Um, since then, obviously, the, yeah, it's definitely pre pandemic. And I think I want to start off by talking to you about things that make you feel a little uncomfortable. Um, for example, oh, great. <laughs> uh, no, no, for, no, don't worry. I won't, I won't go to certain spots, but I, I will go. You're very humble, right? And so I have this Steve Pakin theory where it's like you get asked to do debates, to moderate debates, because if someone were to tune into your show and the camera was only on you, it would be difficult to figure out if they were talking to someone from the left or someone from the right. And that's actually a, a compliment. And I'm just wondering, is that like a, a classic journalism set of skills that you have? Because I don't see that that much anymore in new television hosts or debate moderators or anything that in media that deals with one-on-ones. Well, let me pick up on the first thing you said, which was, you think I'm humble. And I always remember years and years ago, my father saying to me, son, be humble in all things. And luckily for you, you have a lot to be humble about. Now, I think okay. he was kidding, but um, I always took the words to heart. And I think they're, they're good to remember. And it's not hard to remember when you do this job, because basically I, I pretty much start every single day going through emails and Twitter responses and so on of people who think I'm just the dumbest, stupidest thing going. <laughs> and it's not hard to remain humble when you have uh, that many people who are prepared to criticize your work on a daily basis and they pay my salary so they are entitled to do it. So I have no problem with that. But now on the issue of, of um, my politics, I, you know, I would say two things to that. Number one, yes, part of the job is that I don't have the same free speech rights that you or for that matter, most other Ontarians have. I have to play it straight. That comes with the territory. If you want to uh, host a current affairs program that purports not to come from a particular place on the ideological spectrum, then that's part of the price for admission. That's what you've got to do. The other thing is, I think I've been doing this long enough and I think I've been covering politics long enough to know that nothing is that simple. And I remember, you know, I wrote a book about a guy named John Robarts about 15 years ago, who was the premier of Ontario in the 1960s. And he used to have this expression whereby he said, if an issue gets to my desk, meaning cabinet hasn't been able to resolve it, the backbench hasn't been able to resolve it. If it's so problematic that it gets to my desk, by the time it gets there, I could flip a coin as in to figure out which way it ought to be resolved. The preponderance of evidence is almost 50-50 on either side. So you got to make a call. So issues are tricky, issues are tough. And uh, I don't have any difficulty just being modest about how much I think I know about what's the right or wrong way to resolve something. So that's too long an answer, but there you go. No, no, that's fine. That, uh, you know, like, because it's interesting because you can have a controversial guest on your show and and it's a great show. And I think that's really what I'm saying. Like, I, I, I seem to remember maybe Conrad Black and Christy Blatchford and people on, you know, and Jordan Peterson, certainly. Actually, Jordan Peterson is a good, good one because you had him on your show several times before he was famous, right? Oh, I, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't put it this way, but the fact is TVO, quote unquote, discovered Jordan Peterson. I think we were the first people to put him on TV. We have a producer named Vodek Schemberg who, who liked him as a lecturer. Remember, this guy used to do 90-minute, two-hour-long lectures at U of T on subjects a lot less controversial than what he has come to be known for. And Vodek just liked the way he did his thing. So 
he put him on our channel and he probably was on, I don't know, 10, 12 times before he said anything that that would be considered outrageously controversial. And then, of course, he became huge. And he's probably the most famous University of Toronto professor since Marshall McLuhan, I'm guessing, you know, and that's 50 years ago. So 40 years yeah. ago anyway. Yeah. I, so, I feel, yeah, I, I feel like you, like I don't agree with Jordan Peterson maybe half the time, maybe more, but you know, I don't dislike him though, but I haven't witnessed someone's character be sort of misrepresented more than his. Like, I, I don't understand why you can't just disagree with him and not, you know, and, and, and not hate him. Like he seems well, to hate it. It is, but I feel bad. I, you know, I don't feel bad for him in the sense that I, I wake up at night and, and, and rock back and forth crying about how he's treated or anything. But I do find it interesting that he is just completely misrepresented. Like I don't believe in God. And so I have a whole thing that I don't agree with him on, but the things that I watch other people criticize him for, I just think he's a good case study for all the things that are wrong with our current environment, whether it's social media or, or just how, how the mob likes to attack. And I mean, you know him personally. Do, do you feel the same way about it? Like, without saying that you have to agree or disagree with his politics, like, don't you feel like he's kind of given a raw deal in a lot of circles? Uh, I, I, I would, I would definitely associate myself with your comments in as much as if people agree with him or disagree with him, whatever, he is, he is definitely uh, emblematic of, I think, something that is really unfortunate in society today, which is we don't just have opponents with whom we debate, we have enemies that we need to vanquish. Mm -hmm. And I just really regret that that's the way it goes. I spend a lot of time watching politics, of course, and, and, and I see it there all the time. I see, I see people who, for whatever reason, don't feel they just need to, to win an argument. They need to crush the life out of their opponents. They need to destroy them personally. And I think that's such an unfortunate turn in politics. Um, you know, I do remember the days, I'm going to go back to John Robarts again. After he became premier, again, in the 1960s, he took all members of the legislature, sent them to Union Station, and they all took a five-day-long train trip up to Northern Ontario, members of all three parties. And over the course of five days, they showed each other pictures of their kids and grandkids and so on. And then they came back to Toronto to do their work. And you know what they found? it's a lot more difficult to try to personally destroy somebody when you know that much about their grandchildren. And I just, <laughs> I, I, I kind of wish we could get a bit of the semblance of that spirit back because I just don't know why we need to practice the politics of personal destruction nowadays when just civilized but firm and vigorous disagreement will get us where we need to go, I think. That's my two cents. Yeah, no, I, 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 t I tend to agree. Um, you have a picture of Walter Cronkite next to you. And, you know, I, I, I feel like uh, the media placates that vibe. Um, you know, we don't seem to have media that is down the middle anymore. And I'm not really, I don't have a beef with CBC because they're too left wing or a beef with post media because they're too right wing. But, you know, <laughs> we don't have a Walter Cronkite. And, and maybe Peter Mansbridge retiring sort of fed into that a little bit because, you know, that was sort of like the last newsman that, that played it straight, right? The last anchorman that, that sort of played it straight. I'm sure there's others that I'm not thinking of that played it straight, but just, yeah, you know, but we don't I, have... I'm, I'm happy to look at this both ways, though. I'm happy to say, on the one hand, Walter Cronkite had just a heck of a lot of power, and he was an editorial gatekeeper at a time when there were only three editorial gatekeepers in the whole of the United States, right? You wow. had these three 
voices of voices from on high. These three anchors, uh, NBC, ABC, CBS, where Walter was, and uh, and that tagline there, and that's the way it is. You know, <laughs> that's yeah. a, if you think about it, that's an awfully arrogant thing to say. <laughs> in some respects you know what i have just been telling you over the last 23 minutes that is the way it is in the world today i mean you got to be a pretty um you got to be a pretty big guy uh, to be able to say something like that so i don't mind the fact in fact i i'm i'm happy about the fact that we have so many more the, the, the whole editorial gatekeeper thing is <laughs> is really being reevaluated nowadays journalism has been democratized like so many other things and that's you know most days of the week that's a good thing now, when it's practiced as, when it's practiced as poorly and as as corruptly, as some affiliates or outlets do, and I don't have to name names if you don't want to, that's a problem. But in the main, I, I think it's great that more people feel they've got a stake in it. You can always name names, please. Uh, you know, <laughs> I the last bridge I saw that wasn't burnt was like in the '90s, so it's fine. Um, well, I don't have to worry about burning a bridge because they're never going to hire me anyway. But but. I mean, <laughs> Let's let's be honest. Fox News, for the most part, well, I should distinguish here between Fox Television, the primetime lineup, and Fox News. Fox News, I actually don't have a big problem with. Fox News, I think most of the time does a pretty good straight-ahead job. The primetime lineup on Fox Television is um, who was it? it? Was the former Australian Prime Minister who I heard interviewed the other day who said they have learned how to market crazy, and that's that's where they're at. And I don't say CNN and MSNBC don't have their moments of crazy as well, because they do, but Fox has perfected it in a way which is incredibly enriching to the Murdoch family and, and which has so little association with facts and reality that it really is an astonishing case study. Yeah, it's, and it's funny because um, I used to wonder when I was young what Fox News was talking about when they would talk about the liberal media. <clears throat> at the time, it didn't seem like there was a liberal media. It just seemed like there was a media. And maybe some of the journalists leaned left, certainly, and maybe most of them did. But it didn't seem like slanted journalism. And then Fox News came, said that the, the media was liberal. And out of that ecosystem, a bunch of liberal media outlets were born. <laughs> so the, the egg came before the chicken in this case. And mm -hmm. I was talking about this with uh, Glenn Greenwald last week and Noam Chomsky about how when MSNBC, when Donald Trump got elected, the same people that MSNBC would call criminals were now pundits on their network, James Clapper and people in the intelligence agencies. And I found that really strange. Like, you know, it made you feel, it made me feel as this, I am, I'm one of those self-admitted idealistic journalists. I think that you know, you should always, you should never sort of take a side and, and, and try your best just to uncover the truth, no matter who it hurts politically. But the, it was like, you had to now look at in hindsight, their credibility just got destroyed. As far as I was concerned, like you, the person you're interviewing, you were advocating prison time for just a year and a half ago. You know, first of all, I love the way you just little name drop Noam Chomsky there. I've been doing it every podcast <laughs> that I've had since I interviewed him. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Yeah, I, I know I I, uh, I got a bunch of kids, and I know that I, I was truly irrelevant to them. And basically <laughs> what I've spent the last four decades of my professional life trying to achieve, they could have cared less until the time one of them accidentally found an interview I'd done maybe 15 or 20 years ago with Noam Chomsky. And then suddenly one of them said to me, 
wow, you interviewed Noam Chomsky? I said, yeah, you know, your, your, your dad hasn't okay. just been wasting his time over the last uh, <laughs> 35, 40 years of his life. So then I was cool after that. But yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it, it does go back to the old expression of where you stand depends on where you sit. And so much of the, the amount of hypocrisy and just out and out disgraceful behavior that I see, thankfully, mostly south of the border. I don't think we see as much of it up here, thankfully, but certainly south of the border right now. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I don't know if the flying will lend us as a reference that that necessarily some of your younger listeners may know, but but these were the guys who walked tight ropes and did incredible flips and acrobatics, and they were amazing. And if Senator Lindsey Graham, um, I mean, he should be an honorary Willenda with the way he has described Donald Trump as a complete and utter disgrace and unfit to be president, and then sucked up to him as nobody has before. And then on January the 6th and 7th, after the riot on Capitol Hill, said, okay, that's it, I'm out, I can't deal with this guy anymore. And now says he's the key to the future of the Republican Party. I mean, those are fairly breathtaking and incompatible four different positions to be taken within a four-year span of time. That's that's awfully either, that's deeply impressive if you can get away with that or utterly appalling. Well, yeah, that's weird that how the, um, the hypocrisy has, and it's probably because of this, but the hypocrisy has sort of, um, it, it runs parallel with the, I guess, the popularity of the internet and social media where like, you know, these clips don't die. <laughs> so- yeah. And so, but but they become more hypocritical, uh, you know. I, the 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 more we get technologically advanced, where these these clips will never die. So that I, I I guess if you get your media from one or two sources and you like Lindsey Graham, you might be okay. But I think that that hypocrisy is slipping towards voters a lot more than it was in the past. Like we we are now hypocrites. Like we well, do what this it does. Sorry to interrupt you there, James, but, but you, you, you said something that put a thought in my head and I want to get it out before I forget it. And that is all of what you've just described reflects a new era that we're in, which is the death of shame. There is no more shame. You can act like Donald Trump acted every day of his presidential life and do the things that he did, some of which were, were truly appalling and disgraceful, and just power through and you'll get away with it. Yeah. And you could argue that the current governor of New York has done a bit of that as well. And Lindsey Graham has surely done it. And Ted Cruz has surely done it. Uh, there's lots of people in the United States in the political world who have done it. And it is a re it's a reflection today on how, you know, when I was coming up in, in, in covering politics, nobody could or would do that because you couldn't be that brazenly awful and show your face the next day and hope to get away with that because it just it, it just couldn't be or wouldn't be done. Yeah, People you know, don't it, care anymore. Rudy Giuliani, they don't care anymore. They don't care that they they know that they can say one thing one day and another thing another day and they're not going to be called on it. And even if they are called on it, they just power through and they seem to survive it all because our teams, our tribalism and our teams are so ingrained right now that it just doesn't matter. And it's it's a really terrible, sad state of affairs. Well, do you think it happened here in in our own way with with the whole? And listen, I, I was never one of those people that that spent uh, hours posting memes about the Trudeau blackface thing, because what I got out of that story, I thought that that my naive 
brain thought that we had an opportunity to sort of move past the cancel culture in a way. So, so the blackface pictures come out. And uh, if you remember, Andrew Shear is standing on the tarmac and he's about to go onto his plane. It's during the campaign. And he says kind of what you would expect him to say. He says, you know, um, I think, you know, uh, we, we, we think that these acts are, are disgusting and despicable and racism has no place and this and that. The other thing. And he said the boilerplate stuff. And I'm sitting at home and I was just like, you blew it. Because in my mind, I feel like he could have gotten up and said, we think these pictures are troubling and we do think he should apologize. However, we also think this could work as a watershed moment because we don't want him to resign. We don't want him to be canceled. We think that he made a mistake when he was a lot younger and it was a stupid mistake as everyone can see. And I think we should just move on. Would, am I totally idealistic in thinking that that could have helped change the culture where maybe the next time a conservative got into trouble for something that he tweeted 10 years ago that the liberals might go, maybe that he was right. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Uh, you, you may be totally, totally idealistic about that, but I think that would have been the smarter approach to take. And in fact, it was the two things popped in my head again as you said that. Number one, the finest moment surrounding all of that belonged to Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader who did not go for the cheap, easy kill, which is what Andrew Scheer attempted to do, but instead took a more nuanced approach and actually had a, a private conversation, I believe, with the prime minister at the time to, to tell him about why he had done what he had done, why it was so problematic. So there was that. The other thing is, I guess the Canadian people in their wisdom came to, or much of them anyway, came to a conclusion that they didn't think Justin Trudeau was a virulent racist and was doing blackface for that reason. And he apologized. He really did apologize numerous times over. And I think that helped, as it were, make the story, as a political story in an election campaign, that helped make it go away to the extent that it did go away. Um, there's nobody in the United States who's done that, James. I, I, Donald Trump has not apologized for anything that he did <laughs> during That's the course true. of his presidential campaign. And maybe if he had once or twice or thrice, he, he might've had some people on the other side who might have given him the benefit of the doubt on other things. Instead, of course, he just tried to lie his way through everything. And that became that therefore became the issue in the story. And, and you're not gonna pick up any friends that way. I would say Trudeau and, and Trump obviously handled uh, their respective situations extremely differently, which is why you know, it turned out one way for Trudeau. He did get reelected and it turned mm -hmm. out another way for Trump. He didn't. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Have you ever thought... 
I'd love to have a podcast just like this one. Well, I can help. My name is Matt Cundell, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Uh, we had, I've been talking to others when I do the Dean Blundell podcast. We talk politics a lot. Uh, we were talking to Michael Geist actually the other day and Nathaniel Erskine-Smith as well about Beasel, about Bill C-10. And, you know, it, it doesn't – I'm not sure if – I don't think it would impact you per se because you're on TVO. Um, you know, you, you, you've had your show there for years. but for i mean is is there anyone that really first of all understands this bill in its current state and why is it that whenever we hear someone use the words free speech the the the, the mainstream automatically kind of starts talking about really far right conservative ideals like it's like free speech itself has become a buzzword for the far right well let's handle these one at a time does anybody really understand this bill uh, <laughs> Excellent question. I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. I think I, I really try not to be a smart aleck in the course of doing my job, but I think you could legitimately say that from time to time, even the minister on the file has looked like he hasn't completely understood some of the things that were in his bill. No so I think way. That's a, that's a bit of a problem. Yeah. That's a bit of a problem. There was a clause that was in. He took it out. He wants kudos for taking it out. Why was it in there in the first place if it didn't matter? Well, he can't really answer that question. Um, this, this file in particular is always fraught, always fraught with difficulty. And I know other governments in the past have, have tried to visit this and not necessarily with any more success. And it's partly about freedom of speech, but it's also partly about what we're allowed or, you know, God forbid, not allowed to do as it relates to our own user generated content. Um, you know, in, instantly the, the, the internet's the wild, wild west, right? And uh, instantly, anybody who's trying to put some rules around what you are or are not allowed to do in the wild, wild west is going to come up for, you know, a bit of a whooping. And the minister is finding that out right now. So do I have the answers here? Hell no. And I bet you don't either. No, no, I, I certainly don't. I also, um, it's funny because the, the free speech used to be the main one of the main pillars of the left like you know the 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 main uh, spark of free speech activism was from berkeley um which funny enough almost became like sort of the spot where free free speech the erosion of free speech was represented when um uh i think it was ben shapiro was speaking at berkeley and uh protesters came dressed up in black and they smashed windows and they were like hitting security guards with like bottles and stuff it was like it was very strange to me you know i and i bring up this point all the time that um columbia which is another free uh lefty sort of bastion on the eastern seaboard columbia university had mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the former iranian president in to speak in 2005 which the world was on fire in 2005 and they let him speak um, because at the time there was no social media telling you that free speech was bad sometimes. And there was this idea that we might not like your ideas, but let's hear them before we dismiss them. And now you can't get Ann Coulter on campus. Well, I think you've hit on something extremely important here. And, and yes, uh, when I was growing up, I'm a little older than you, so maybe not quite when you were growing up, but certainly when I was growing up, university campuses across North American were bastions of free speech. 
They were the places that you went to if you wanted to hear the people speak who maybe couldn't necessarily get on television because they might be too controversial. Well, that has really changed, hasn't it? Uh, you're right, I think. And, and it, it, it feels like it's a particular problem for the left right now as well. There, there are voices that the left simply doesn't want to hear, or I shouldn't say the left, some elements on the left simply don't want to hear, and that is problematic. Um, I'm not sure there's a, thing, a single thing that either you or I would agree with as it relates to the former prime minister of Iran, or president of Iran, Ahmadinejad. I'm not sure we'd agree with anything he had to say. Uh, but the fact is, um, if he doesn't break the law, he ought to be allowed to come and say what he wants to say on a university campus without that campus having to spend tens of thousands of dollars in extra security to ensure that all hell doesn't break loose. And, and the audience that goes and hears him speak can make up its own mind about what they've heard and whether it's useless or useful. And I, I, I do get very concerned about the fact, particularly because I work in an, I, I'm perfectly happy to restrict my own free, street, free speech rights in order to do the job that I do. But I'm not happy to have the guests that come onto the program that I do give up their free speech rights because there are too many people out there who don't want to hear anything because it offends them or it makes them uncomfortable or they just don't think that that kind of language ought to be used or that kind of speech ought to be allowed. We've got to be super careful before we start shutting people down because, because the, the dangerous idea that you don't want to hear today could be Medicare tomorrow, right? Like 50 right. years ago, 60 years ago, to be in favor of Medicare 60 years ago was a devilishly controversial place to be. And today, it's the most cherished social program we have in Canadian history. So, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of time on these things. Yeah, and it was really interesting hearing Obama, I think it was like a year ago. I don't, I don't know where he was speaking, but he said that, you know, th this, this idea of um, policing other people's speech, you know, is, it has no long game to it. And it was the first time I had heard someone allegedly from the left. I happen to think he's sort of a moderate conservative personally, but you know, um, you know, he's America's first black president telling people to, to, to not worry about being so politically correct. And then I started reading this New York Magazine article, came out around the same time as Obama's speech, that showed that it's really people of color, women, uh, people in the LGBTQ community that are most against political correctness. And it's really an issue that's propped up by privileged white liberals. And, well, I did hear Jim yeah. Carville, the, you know, the former Bill Clinton advisor on television the other day, telling people of the left that they've just got to start being careful about the way they express themselves and that they shouldn't do it in a way that is going to alienate much of middle America. And that if they want to be able to keep connected to middle America or to be able to reach out and speak to middle America, they may, they may simply have to rethink the way that they use the English language. And, you know, I, I, I got to confess, I'm not up on all these new terms that are being used. Uh, I'm not even going to say what they are right now, because I'm sure I'm going to say them incorrectly, and I'll just look more foolish <laughs> than I normally do. Twitter but, mob. but Car Carville was making a good point. He was saying, he was just saying, you know, everyday people don't talk that way, the way of the far left today. And, and if, you want to, if you want to reach out and you want to gain allies, 
you know, you might not just think about the way that you want to say something. You may want to also think about the way other people hear it. And I thought that was a useful point to make. Yeah, it is. Um, <clears throat> I was, uh, there's, that, there's that swath of voters, that uh, that middle America swath, um, the ones that um, their, if their first choice was Bernie Sanders, their second vo uh, choice was Trump and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And that is like that fertile ground. And if you cater to that sort of far left, you know, really hardcore about language crowd, it's impossible to reach that other middle America crowd. So it's, it's a hard situation for a political party um, because the people that you raise money from would be completely offended if you tried to woo certain voters in middle America. So it's almost an impossible prospect. Well, and that goes back to the university point that you were making a few moments ago, which is, which is universities have a harder time being bastions of free speech today because they have to worry too much about who they're going to offend, in particular, their big donors. And if one of your donors doesn't like a guest that you've brought in to speak to a student group or an association on campus, uh, and you are risking millions, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars uh, to have that speaker speak, you know, I guess there's some understanding about why you would want to uh, think very carefully about having that speaker there. But mm. it, it, it speaks to the need that when universities go get money, the money has to come with very few strings attached. The money can't come with, I'm prepared to give you this 50 million bucks, but only if you don't have, you know, persons X, Y, Z come to campus and speak. You know, those two things can't be connected. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're kind of either all in or you're not in. And I think as it relates to free speech, we ought to be a little more all in than not in. Mm -hmm. I think um, I think you're absolutely right. And you, I'll have you know, that's almost exactly what Noam Chomsky said last week when he, when he was on the show. He huh. said that, he, yeah, he said that um, the best answer uh, is that you allow all speech and you counter really bad ideas with really good ideas. Simple as Makes that. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Makes sense to me too. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about sure. your sweater. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a Habs fan. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. I never I would have agreed to this if I'd known I, I, that. I, I, <laughs> That's funny. I, I, I was born in Montreal. I didn't really have a choice. My dad was one of those guys where it was like, I learned like three things by the time I was five. Um, that the Montreal Canadiens were good, that the Toronto Maple Leafs were bad, <laughs> and that while I was watching hockey, I was allowed to say tabalnak. And that was those are the you know, three things. James, I learned the exact same three things, but but exactly the opposite. <laughs> Leafs good, Habs bad, and swear in English all you like if you get scored on. Oh, that's hilarious. But we haven't had a playoff. Like in all seriousness, like I, I like to play the game of I hate you because you're a Leaf fan and I in you know. All true, truth be told, I like the Leafs second best. I do. They're just a distant second because what's second when you have a favorite team, right? But like, but I don't hate them or anything like that. However, I don't think they've been in the playoffs to get face each other since 1979 or something. Correct. And I feel like a kid at Christmas. Even though I don't really like sports without fans, I've noticed. I, I have a hard time getting into the game without fans, like basketball especially. I'm just... Oh, they put these cardboard cutouts of fans in the thing, and I just can't get used to it. But the prospect of seeing the Leafs and the Habs play and and just knowing that the Leafs are going to blow it and lose in six is just a really comforting <laughs> idea. Well, of course, I'm 
as much as I would like to sit here and tell you that you're absolutely wrong, uh, I am a student of history, and I do have to note that uh, I don't think the Leafs have been out of the first round in how many years? Seven or eight years or something like that? Yeah. So uh, I'm not going to sit here all cocky atop the North Division and say, give me a break, we're going to beat you in four straight, because I don't think that's going to happen either. Let me put it this way. you I, I think you touched on something really, really interesting here. I don't know how important it is, but it's really interesting. And that is, in my other life, I'm a big Boston Red Sox fan. Been a Red Sox fan since before the Blue Jays were born. and and in order, for, I think in order for you to really love your team, you really have to hate another team. And to be a Red Sox fan means at the same time, you have to hate the Yankees. So in 2004, when the Red Sox won their first World Series in 86 years, the notion that they were down 0-3 to the New York Yankees and were about to be swept out of existence again, and yet they won four straight, came back and defeated the evil empire and then went on to beat St. Louis in four straight. So they won eight in a row to win the World Series. That just made it so much better. you got to have a team you love. you got to have a team you hate. And I know, I guess younger people, for younger Leaf fans, I guess it's the Ottawa Senators. It never has been for me. It's always been the haves for me. Uh-huh. Just can't stand the fact that they've had the decks stacked their way for so many years to get the, you know, always to get the, the creme de la creme of the first draft choices that come out of the province of Quebec. Uh, year after yeah. year after year. Yeah, that's right. So it's just a it's, bunch of French Eric Lindrosses at the end of the day, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Telling us anyway, where they want to go. Yeah. It's all good for sport. It's good for sport that you got a team you love and I got a team I love and we both have a team that we hate. And uh, vive la différence. I just want to point out that um, the Habs have played like 17 times in 22 days or something like that. But by the time the playoffs start, Shea Weber will be back. Gallagher will be back. Carey Price will be back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think you guys might want to, you know, might want to prepare yourselves for some disappointment. That's all I'm saying. You know, we have nothing well, to lose. You know, we I, don't even I, have a guy in the top 40 in scoring. You know, like I'm not going to get cocky about this as much okay, as I'd I'm love trying. to. I'm, I'm just not going to get cocky about this. I've just seen this movie too many times in the past. Having said that, I think I do subscribe to the widely held view that for a first place team in their division, and I think a top six team overall in um, overall standings in the NHL, I'm not sure the Leafs are as good a first place team as any of the other first place teams are. You know, I think if you really, if you really analyzed it tough, you'd have to say Pittsburgh's probably a better first place team. You'd have to say Vegas is probably a better team. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if even St. Louis is a better team and they're a fourth place team. So yeah, um, you you must have some good baseball memories because I often see you. You post a lot of pictures uh, from the old like C and E days, and I've seen you in Fenway mm-hmm. a couple times. Were you at the World Series? Um, yeah, I was at the World Series in 2013 and in 2018 and in 1992 and 1993. Oh wow! Now, the 92-93 ones, of course, were in Toronto. Mm-hmm. I went to all the home games in Toronto. And in 2013 and 2018, I went to uh, one World Series game in Boston each time. And that was great fun, I have to admit. Were you an Expos fan when the Expos were around? Not really. I mean, to the extent that I, I mean, a little bit. I I do remember we did go to some Expo games. I'm from Hamilton, so it's a long drive. And we did go to some Expo games when we were growing up. 
Um, but I wouldn't say I was an Expo fan. I had, uh, my parents had a place in Florida and, uh, we used to go to West Palm beach and see the Yankees and, uh, and Expo. We, we were, we went to see the Expos, but they shared a, uh, spring training facility. And I think I was like seven or eight and Don Mattingly was signing autographs and there was this big crowd around him. And, you know, I'm trying to get through, I'm this little kid with like a mushroom cut. One of those annoying little kids you see in horror movies, right? <laughs> the seventies. And I finally got up to him and I gave him my Don Mattingly card. And he just sort of did like a swirl and just handed it back to me. And then next thing you know, he was about to go on the bus and I got trampled and someone pulled me out and I'm thinking it was my dad. And it was like this little Latino guy and his wife and through broken English and me trying to explain that my dad was somewhere around. They said, okay, we stand here. We wait for your dad. And I'm like, okay. So all of a sudden, um, Andres Galarraga walks up and it, it was his parents. <laughs> his parents oh, had seen him from the crowd. <clears throat> and just like a little douchebag, I had a Andres Galarraga by 10. And I was like, you saw my thing, you know? But yeah, I have a real, I have a lot of interesting baseball memories from spring training. I saw Randy Johnson's very first Major League Baseball game ever in spring mm -hmm. training. They, they didn't have a uniform that fit. So they found some really big practice uniform and then put masking tape and put R. Johnson on it. And, uh, but he was amazing. I don't know. Baseball, when when Moneyball came out and uh, what's that line Brad Pitt says, how can you not be romantic about baseball? I was just like, mm -hmm. yeah, finally, someone coined the phrase that I've been thinking my whole life. It's your favorite sport, isn't it? It's my favorite sport to watch. I actually like to play hockey more, mm. which I haven't been able to do this year for obvious reasons. But but uh, it's, it, it is my favorite sport to watch. And I'll tell you what never gets old. Uh, I went to Boston University when I was a kid. After graduating from U of T, I went to BU because BU is right beside Fenway Park. So mm. I really wanted to, I wanted to go to BU because they had a great journalism program, but I wanted to go to BU because it was right near Fenway and I could get to go to a lot of Red Sox games as well, uh, which I did. And so that walk into the stadium, into Fenway Park and through the tunnel, and you emerge at the end of the tunnel and you see this absolutely gorgeous Green grass, natural grass stadium with the green monster wall in left field that never gets old. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm choking up right now just thinking about it because it's, it's such a lovely thing. And it's lovely for so many reasons. Never mind that baseball is lovely and romantic and all the things you just said. But, but when I graduated from high school, uh, my dad asked me, let's take a trip to celebrate. Where do you want to go? And I said, I want to go to Fenway Park. Never been before at that time. This is 1978. So we did. And my dad and I went to Fenway in 1978. And then lots of years later, I took all of my kids to Fenway. And as you pointed out uh, to me before we started up doing this, I uh, just had, uh, well, I didn't have it, but my daughter-in-law just had her first child, my first grandchild. And I've already said, I got dibs on taking this kid to Fenway Park when she's old enough to go. So it's a, it's a generational thing. It's where generations connect. It's it's where I remember Bob Costas, who's, I guess, got to be the most eloquent baseball guy around. I remember him saying, you know, I never really got along with my father and we never really had a lot to talk about. And we just couldn't really connect. Until we went to Yankee Stadium and then for whatever reason, I entered his world and he entered my world and then we were good. And while that's not my story at all, um, I connect with my family and my, my dad and mom, just great. Uh, there is the sense that, that 
it happens in a different way and in a lovelier way and in a way that creates memories uh, when you go to ball games or hockey games or football games or whatever. But I think that it's better at baseball games because, you know, unlike when you go see the Raptors, you're not just constantly inundated with loud music and everything. You can talk between pitches. It's a uh, Peter Herndorf's a guy who uh, used to be my boss at TVO and used to run the National Arts Center in Ottawa. And Peter used to say, when I want to go have my senses assaulted and just have a great rock and roll time, I take my son to a Raptor game. When I want to find out what's going on in my daughter's life, I take her to a Blue Jay game. Hmm. And I think that very well sums up the differences between those sports and those experiences. So I, I can't I, wait I to like, get back into the seats. Yeah, no, I bet. I, and the way that you describe sort of the generational importance of going to the ball. I mean, that's almost imprinted in your DNA at, at that point, you know, like it's the, the creating sort of memories based on these echoes from your own past. I, I like that a lot. Um, I had a more of a relationship with my father before he passed. That was sort of like, um, I can't remember the name that you said, but uh, oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, I'm more of a Vinnie, Vin Scully guy, but that's just me. Um, <laughs> but you know, the, he was not talkative. And I remember being like 12, 13, I played rep baseball and stuff. And, you know, the way that I could break my eyes with my old man, um, who was just so quiet all the time was, was through baseball. It was the, that was the thing that was the connecting tissue between how we communicated. When I stopped playing baseball, I moved out of the house. We didn't communicate all that much. And, and that's a whole other story, but there is truth to it. And, and I don't think it would have been the same if it was hockey for some reason. No, this you're is, right. It, it wouldn't have been know. the same because hockey is constant. Co hockey is fast. Uh, it's not It's not like baseball. Baseball is different in that way. You know, you have long stretches of, frankly, not that much happening, although there is a lot happening if you're a real student of the game. But yep. long stretches for the casual fan where there's not that much happening. And that enables you to really have some wonderful, memorable conversations with whoever you're with. And then when the moments of, you know, real drama come up, uh, you remember all that too. Um, well, speaking of wonderful, memorable conversations, I think we just had one. Um, <laughs> well, thank you for saying so. I, I, I thought so too. I appreciate I would like, you're asking. Yeah, no problem. I'd like to have you again. Um, and, you know, thanks for coming. And uh, I'm sorry that I had to make you follow Chomsky, I, um, but I think you did a really <laughs> good job. I was, someone told me, they're like, dude, it's like asking someone to go after Dave Chappelle. And I'm like, no, it's not because they're totally different people. It's going to be fine. <laughs> But well, I do think so how old is he now, James? Is he 90 now? He's 92. 92. Okay. Uh, you know, here's hoping you'll have me back if and when I get to 92 as well. And here's oh, hoping deal. I got something to say at that age. <laughs> deal. I'll have you back in 31 years or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Steve. Uh, that's Steve Paken, everybody. Um, he's again, uh, the host of the agenda on TVO. And my second guest uh, ever, this is episode two of Black Ball. I'm going to try to work out the uh, the wrinkles a little bit, maybe put something behind me other than my TV. My cat keeps bothering me while I'm doing this podcast. So we're still trying to figure it out. The most important thing that I want to do for you guys is just bring you really cool interviews and long-form conversations. So I think I'm about to go see you on the Dean Blundell show. Um, so tune into that, please. And until then, uh, we'll see you next time on Black Ball. Thank you very much, everybody.
I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. The podcast that goes everywhere the imagination dares. It's for the open-minded, the pleasure seeker. It's Jeff Woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality, theme-based with special guests, the Blue Hotel Hotline, and every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story. Get a room and listen in at the Blue Hotel. Begins Friday, September 23rd.